All right, guys. Well, uh, why don't you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. I checked my notes uh, from the last time we met in Revelation, December 16th. And then we took a, a break for, the, for Christmas and all. And then I got sick. So it's been six weeks since our last study in Revelation. Let me review quickly. Ever since chapter 4, verse 1, we have been in heaven with John. I believe that uh, verse represents the rapture of the church, John being raptured. And of course, because we're part of the church, we are going to be there as well. Uh, but uh, as John is raptured into heaven, and, uh, and, and, and as it was, he starts to describe what he's seeing. And it's pretty spectacular. I mean, you know, you're talking about a first century guy. I mean, at least we have the benefits of Star Wars and special effects. And, you know, you're talking about a first century guy being taken to heaven. And he is like, you know, I hate no disrespect to John, like a, a rube in the big city. OK, uh, and, and he's just he's blown away by what he's saying and he's describing it. And uh, it's like we're standing right alongside of him. And so uh, chapter four was him, you know, describing this. And uh, this scene in heaven. And then in chapter 5, as John is just, you know, focusing on primarily the throne of God, God the Father, and just the, the angels or the four living creatures around the throne, and uh, just describing what he is seeing, something catches his attention. In chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw on the right hand of him, who sat on the throne, now this would be God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, we said that in that culture, uh, scrolls were often, were almost always written on one side. Uh, but there were exceptions, and one of those was for a title deed. And that's what I believe this scroll represents. It's the title deed to the earth. All right, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But verse 2, then, a, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. As we said last time, the Greek is, I wept convulsively. John loses it. You say, well, what was he so upset about? He rightly understood because obviously as a Jew, uh, having the scriptures, uh, he knew that how God had created Adam and Eve, put them in a beautiful garden, in the Garden of Eden. And pretty much gave them the freedom to eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says that they walk with God. Uh, of course, they had no sin in their soul, so they had this beautiful fellowship with the Lord. Every day he would come down and, and walk among them in the cool of the garden, and they would fellowship with God face to face. They didn't have to work. Everything brought forth on its own, right? And we don't know how long that lasted for. But eventually Satan took the form of a serpent and he beguiled Eve to eat of the fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She ate, gave to Adam, and he did eat, and they both fell. 
two-pronged effect at that moment. First of all, sin entered their souls, so they were severed from God's fellowship, right? Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Sin separates us from God. But also, in that one act of disobeying God, who had been their master, and obeying the devil, they, at that moment, turned the world. They were given control of the world by God. They were to watch over it and tend it, okay, the garden especially. But but when they disobeyed the Lord God and obeyed the devil, at that moment, they transferred ownership of the world into Satan's hands, and Satan became the world's new owner and man's new master. And the Jewish people, from the time they were just small children, able to understand, were taught by their parents that this world is not the world God wanted us to live in. This is not where he had created us to live in. This is a fallen world. They called it the, the, the dark age of man's rebellion, all right? And that's how they saw this, the, the, the rebel, age of rebellion and spiritual darkness and so on because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise to Adam and Eve. He said, I'm going to send to you, though, one day a Redeemer. And he's going to crush the serpents. In other words, he's going to destroy Satan's authority because now Satan was the god of this world. Now, he is a usurper. He doesn't own the world. That's why the title deed is in the Father's hand and not in the devil's hand. But he has taken control of it. Doesn't own it really, but has taken control of it, right? And so they understood that the world was now under the control of Satan. And if no one would, and they were taught that at one point a Messiah, a Redeemer would come who would crush the devil's authority and, and retake the earth and, and bring about a glorious new age, kingdom age, where everything would be put right. Everyone would, everything would go back the way. God intended it in the first place, right? Where God would be in control. And, and the knowledge of God would fill the earth like the waters of the seas do right now. And there wouldn't be the, these wars and injustice and evil. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, at that time in the kingdom age, they would beat their, their swords and spears into, plu, uh, into um, uh, plowshares and pruning hooks and study and, and carry out war no more. Every person would be able to sit under their own fig tree and not be afraid because there would be no violence, no theft, and so on, right? And John, from the time he was a little boy, was, was dreaming for the day when everything would be set right. And now here it is. And the cry goes out. Uh, as God the Father is holding the title deed to the earth in his right hand. And the word goes out, is there anyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth? worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. And no one was found worthy, as we said last time. Michael didn't step forward, the great archangel. Gabriel didn't step forward. No angel in heaven, no demon in hell. Of course, they wouldn't step forward. No man on the earth was worthy. And so John begins to weep convulsively because he's, he can't come to terms with the fact that if no one is found worthy to redeem the world back from the hands of the devil, the world would go on indefinitely under the devil's control. And so he's just, he just loses it. I wept convulsively. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll 
and to loose its seven seals. Now, at this point, John turns, expecting to see what? A lion. But instead, in verse 6, he sees something different, a lamb. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. And the Greek is violently slain. And we'll, we talked about that last time, okay? A lamb as it had been violently slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The Greek word translated lamb is a word that literally means little lamb. Pet lamb. What does that mean? Before Passover the Jewish people would take one of their little lambs to be killed. And of course, these lambs are like a pet, okay, um, to them. And, and, and the idea behind this idea of this lamb, Jesus Christ being like a little lamb or a pet lamb, it speaks of innocence, gentleness, and submissiveness. In this context, it speaks of Jesus being submissive to his Father's will in dying for the sins of the earth, of the world. But make no mistake about this, Jesus himself said in John 10, No one takes my life from me by force. I give it freely for the sheep. So Jesus Christ was a willing sacrifice. A willing sacrifice. People say, well... It was the Romans that nailed Jesus to the cross. Uh, yes and no. They literally nailed him to the cross, but really it was love that nailed him there. The love of God for his fallen creation. I mean, uh, Jesus didn't have to die. He could have said to the Father, I'm not going down there and dying. Of course, he'd never do that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are in perfect unity with each other. But I just want you to know that, yes, it was the Father's will that the Son come down and die for our sins, but Jesus himself was a willing sacrifice. But I, I love the, uh, the dynamic between these two ideas of lion and lamb. One author put it this way, and the Holy Spirit's presenting it that way on purpose. But one author suddenly quote, The Lord Jesus Christ is a lion and a lamb. The lion character refers to his second coming. The lamb character refers to his first coming. The lion is a symbol of his majesty. The lamb is symbolic of his, of his meekness. As a lion, he is a sovereign. As a lamb, he is a savior. As a lion, he is a judge. As a lamb, he was judged and crucified, although innocent. The lion represents the government of God. The lamb represents the grace of God. At his first coming, he was the lion of God, excuse me, at his first coming, he was the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. At his second coming, he will come as the Lion of the tribe of Judah to judge sinners and reign as king, end quote. Jesus Christ, as we have said before, will be to every person who has ever lived one of two things. He'll either be their loving Savior, their sacrificial Lamb, or their righteous Judge, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And what he is to you on that day, the day of judgment, depends on 
what he becomes to you right now while you're on the earth. We choose. Is Jesus going to be my righteous judge or my loving Savior? That's up to me. If I receive him and bow the knee before him, acknowledging him as my king and savior, then he is my lamb, the one who died for my sins, and I never have to worry about judgment. If, on the other hand, a person says, I will not have this man rule over me, I'm going to do my thing, and refuses to bow the knee to Christ on this earth, then someday they'll stand before him, and he will be their righteous judge. Now, hold on to that. We'll come back to it at the end of the study. But John sees um, Jesus as this docile lamb having seven horns. A horn in the Bible often speaks of power. Uh, you can read uh, Daniel chapters 7 and 8. The number 7 speaks of what? Completeness, completion, that's right. So what's in view here is complete power complete power jesus is the lamb of god or in other words he is god the lamb in this passage having seven horns which speaks of him being the almighty omnipotent god he is not just a mighty god but inferior to almighty jehovah god as the jehovah's witnesses believe and teach he is almighty god because God is a triune being, the Trinity, triune, triunity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit make up one God, consisting of three separate and distinct persons. And Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He's not a lesser God. He's not a created being, like the JWs teach and others. He is the creator. Through him, all things were made. John 1, verse 3. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, if through him all things were made, then he himself could not have been made. He is the creator and uh, has given birth to everything. He also has seven eyes. John sees him having seven eyes. Uh, again, seven being the number of completeness. Eyes speak of comprehension, knowledge, uh, Jesus Christ has all knowledge. He's omniscient, okay? Omniscient. Of course, you remember Hebrews 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God or hidden from His sight. Everything is open and naked and exposed before the eyes of Him to whom we must one day give an account. So our God knows everything. He, he not only knows the actions of a person's life, all people. He knows their deepest thoughts. In fact, the Bible says in, in, in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that uh, our, our, you know, to us, uh, our hearts deceive us. We don't always know uh, all the thoughts of our own hearts, but God searches the hearts, knows all things. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We tend to present a picture of ourselves that is uh I, I more optimistic than is real okay we all think we're better than we really are i mean i haven't met anybody in all my years of witnessing that says i'm a rotten terrible sinner maybe one or two usually i'm a good person they say and that's what the bible says every each man 
proclaims his own goodness. Everyone thinks they're a good person. They did a survey years ago uh, with inmates in several prisons, and all of them thought they were good people. I mean, it's amazing, right? God knows the truth, though. There are things in our own hearts that we don't even realize, things we're harboring, bitterness, anger, uh, all kinds of stuff. We don't even see it's there, but God sees it. And we'll work in our lives to bring it to the surface so we see it. Because only when we can see it can we acknowledge it, repent of it, and he can cleanse us of it, is the idea. So Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, and as such he is the omniscient, omnipotent God, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now this, this stumbles people. What do you mean the seven spirits of God? There's one Holy Spirit. Well, that's true. If you compare that to Isaiah 11, verse 2, it talks about the sevenfold spirit of God or the attributes, the seven, again, seven completeness, the complete attributes of the Holy Spirit, which is probably what's in view there. There aren't seven Holy Spirits. There's one. But these, this idea of seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth talk about the fullness of God being sent into all the earth. Now, I believe this could very well be a reference to something Jesus told his disciples. Turn to John 14 quickly. This was in the upper room the night before the cross. And Jesus is comforting these men because he knows what's coming and he knows he's going to be leaving them shortly. And they can't follow him at that time. He says, I'll come back for you. Uh, I'll come and get you to say you can be with me someday, but right now I'm going to be leaving and you can't go with me. Verse 12. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do. And listen, greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said that when the Holy Spirit came, his disciples would do greater works than Jesus did? I mean, folks, Jesus raised the dead. He walked on water. I mean, he calmed storms with a word. He, he, he fed thousands of people with a few scraps of food. How in the world are we as his disciples ever going to do greater things than that? Well, no, we, we're not going to do greater things than that. Uh, the works that he's talking about are not uh, works, greater works in, uh, in magnitude. Raising the dead is pretty spectacular. He's talking about we will do greater works than him in scope. What does that mean? Before Jesus Christ was incarnated into Mary's womb, of course, he was in heaven. And God is spirit. So Jesus Christ was spirit, along with the Father, the Holy Spirit. And as spirit, he was omnipresent, because that's the nature of God, to be everywhere all at once. Now, when Jesus Christ came and was planted into Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, the seed of God, Eventually, he was born as a flesh and blood child, grew up to be a man, right? But when he took on a human body, a real physical flesh and blood human body, he was limited to one place at one time. He could either be in the Galilee, or he could be down in Jerusalem, or maybe growing up in Nazareth. But he couldn't be in all those places at the same time. 
Therefore, his ministry was limited to one place at a time. What he's telling his disciples is, look, when I go to the cross and rise from the dead, I'm going to at one point ascend back to my father. And I'm going to pray the father. And he's going to send back the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would indwell every single person who accepts Christ on the face of the earth. We're called the body of Christ, right? The church. Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would indwell every believer on the face of the earth. So now Jesus could be in China or Africa or South America, North America, all at the same time. And as such, working through the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit could do all kinds of works through the people of God, through the body of Christ. Greater works than Jesus could do, not in magnitude, but in scope. Where Jesus' ministry was limited, limited to Israel, well, now it's not limited to any one place. And the body of Christ is spread out across the entire globe, is the idea. Verse 7. Then he came and took the scroll. So Jesus steps forward to the throne of the Father and took the scroll, again, the title deed to the earth, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, guys, you may not see this from just a casual reading, but something momentous is about to happen. I mean, something incredible is about to happen. Something very important is unfolding before our eyes, actually John's eyes, but you get the point. God the Father is now making good on a promise he made to his son. Jesus was to come down to the earth to suffer and die. And if he did, the Father promised him, I will raise you up. I won't leave your soul in Hades. In other words, I will resurrect you and you will become king of the entire earth. Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. In other words, all rebels. All rebels. We don't rebellion on the earth when Jesus reigns. You shall break, again I'll paraphrase, all the rebels with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus Christ, in fact, Jesus Christ is called despotes in the New Testament. That's the word we get our word desperate from, despot. Well, wait a minute. Jesus Christ is a despot? The word desperate means absolute ruler. The problem is whenever fallen man becomes an absolute ruler, it's bad. Okay? How's the old saying go? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, right? The only one who could handle absolute power is God in human form, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. Think of the ultimate benevolent dictator. Sounds bad, doesn't it? Call Jesus despot and dictator. Those are just terms for him being absolutely in control. Absolute sovereignty. No, nobody does anything but what he allows. Anyone who refuses to obey the laws of God in the millennial kingdom 
I don't know how bad the transgression has to be, but if it's if it's bad enough, the Lord is going to pop them, and they're going to be gone. Take them out. You know, um, He will rule with a rod of iron, and there'll be complete peace, and harmony, and love throughout the face of the earth. Psalm one ten verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So when Jesus ascended back to the Father after his resurrection, the Father is saying to him, Sit down, son, until I can put all your enemies, the tribulation period, under your feet. Then you're going to come back and take control. All right, so for 2,000 years now, Jesus has been sitting, right? Now, Revelation chapter 5, he's standing. He's standing. And he steps forward as a lamb that was slain, the only one in heaven and earth that was able to pay the price of redemption by dying on the cross, the only one therefore worthy to take the scroll and begin to bring the judgments of God upon this Christ-rejecting world. He now steps forward, for the time has come for him to stand and take possession of what he has bought and paid for on Calvary's cross. But... Before he can take possession of what he has bought and paid for, there is a little unfinished business that he first has to take care of. He has got to dispossess the earth of the usurpers. And I'm thinking primarily of Satan, but also we include the Antichrist, his armies, his followers, all those who have thrown their lot in with this ultimate rebel, the Antichrist, against God. Remember now, the Bible says, you can read Psalm 2 at your leisure, right? Where the Bible talks about when Jesus returns, the armies of the Antichrist are going to be waiting for him in the Valley of Megiddo. Now, they know when he's going to return because the Bible is very clear. From the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and demands to be worshipped as God, 1260 days later, Christ will return. So they know when he's coming. And we've talked about this, right? Here they are in the Valley of Megiddo with their surface-to-air missiles and Apache helicopters and, and, and all this stuff waiting. Here he comes, you know, and they're going to let him have it. Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Gabriel, look at this. Look at these folks. This is, this is a riot. They think they're going to go to battle against God and win. Of course, the Antichrist has got their minds all messed up. He's convinced his followers, the devil has, convinced the followers of the Antichrist, that they are going to be able to go to war against God and win to keep Jesus from reigning. We will not have this man rule over us. We're going to fight him, and we're going to win, really. You study Revelation 19, there really isn't a fight, is there? He speaks the word, they're vaporized. The ultimate folly, the ultimate self-deception, to think that a man, a woman, a people can go to war against God and win. Amazing. But basically, guys, some unfinished business before Jesus can take the throne, and he's going to bring to an, uh, its conclusion the judgment of God by wiping out all the rebels. That's really what chapter 6 through 18 of Revelation is all about. It's Jesus destroying the usurpers, cleansing the earth of all the rebels so that when he establishes his kingdom, only the righteous enter in. 
He's going to take possession of what he has bought and paid for on Calvary's cross. What has he bought and paid for? Well, the earth, people say. Yeah. But why? Why the earth? Does God need another rock spinning in the cosmos? Is that what God wanted? Another planet? He's got billions upon billions of planets sprinkled throughout the universe. So why did he die? Why did Jesus die? To redeem the earth. Was that really what he was after? Again, to redeem a rock, another planet in the cosmos? No, there was a treasure on this planet, and that's really what he was after. Remember the parable that we talked about of the hidden treasure? A man was walking through a field and stumbled across a treasure and went out and sold everything he had to buy the field so that he could have the treasure. In Scripture, the field is a type of the world. Jesus Christ came to the earth because there was a treasure here. It wasn't the planet Earth he was after. It was the people on the planet, those he loved, those he died for. Now, unfortunately, although all people could be saved, the Bible, John says very clearly that Jesus Christ died and was a propitiation for our sins, not just for ours, though for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Technically, the whole world could have been saved. We're going to see at the end of the study why the whole world isn't saved. And it's not God's fault. But Jesus had to redeem the world back from Satan to get the treasure. And we think ultimately of his church, his bride. He bought and paid for us with his own blood. It's called redemption. We were the slaves of Satan. Remember I said earlier when man disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden? He transferred ownership of the world into the hands of Satan who became the world's new owner, man's new master. We became the slaves of Satan. And the only way for us to be set free was if somebody could pay the price of redemption. God has set aside whole books to deal with this in his word. Ruth, right? It had to be a kinsman redeemer. A man blew it and sold us into slavery. A kinsman of man, in other words, another human being, we know the God-man, had to redeem us. And he did. And he redeemed us, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Bible says the redemption of our souls was costly. No human being could pay the price. Because it would be the innocent dying for the guilty, and we're all born with original sin. Because sin is passed from the father to the children. Every one of us born into this life physically were born with original sin on our soul. And therefore, none of us could have died for the sins of another. Sinners can't die for sinners. That's why the virgin birth was necessary. Because the virgin birth bypassed an earthly father. Jesus did not have an earthly father. His father was God the Father. 
there was an earthly man who adopted him, Joseph. But God the Father was his father. And because he didn't have an earthly father, he was born without original sin and then lived a perfect life after that so that he could die for us. Yes, no one was found worthy. The word went out, anybody worthy in heaven, earth, under the earth. No. Only one man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Who through his own blood, a lamb without spot or blemish, sinless, perfect, shed his blood for us to redeem us out of the hands of Satan. To redeem the world back to God, but he was looking for the treasure, not the planet. Okay? Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Incense in the Bible is often used as a symbol of prayer, okay, like it is being used here. Our prayers, even though they are likened to incense in Scripture, don't listen. They don't dissipate or disintegrate once they're spoken. People think, well, after I pray, they just go out of existence. That's not true. The Bible tells us right here that these prayers of the righteous rise to God's throne and he actually collects them and puts them in golden bowls. I guess around heaven as keepsakes. Something special. I think the girls fit into this more than the guys. I'm not trying to say guys can't have a very special friend, but it's usually the girls. Um, you know, you have a very special dear friend. Right, girls? And uh, you don't see this person much because maybe they live far away, you know. But every time she comes in, you guys hang out, and maybe she brings you a little, a little present, just a little keepsake that you put somewhere special. Uh, and every time you look at it, it reminds you of the sweet fellowship that you have had with this very dear friend. The same is true with our prayers. When we spend time with God in prayer, he loves that. And it says here he actually collects those prayers, keeps them in golden bowls throughout heaven as a reminder of the precious time he has had with us or we have had with him. I mean, you think of it that way, you begin to look at prayer slightly different. It's not an obligation. It's a, it's a privilege. Especially when you realize how much God loves the, our time with him. Uh, somebody said, what can I give God? Talk about the person who has everything. What, what can we give God that he needs? Nothing. Well, then how about what can I give God that he wants? Well, he wants my fellowship. doesn't need it. God's self-sufficient. But he loves our time. That's why Jesus died. To bring us into oneness with God, this fellowship, this unity. And every time we come into his presence and we talk with him, he, he loves that time with us. And so he keeps those prayers as a keepsake. Now, not only uh, do these prayers that we pray ascend to God's throne where he keeps them as keepsakes, but they also remain, if I can put it this way, in his active box. In his active box. They remain active, these prayers, until the timing of God determines 
they are to be acted upon, right? Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1, For everything there is a, a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. If you read Scripture, and I know you all do, of course, it becomes very obvious right away that God has a time for everything. He never wings it. He's always got a definite program he's working from, a definite timetable. The most obvious of, of all of these would be the redemption of, that Christ brought to the earth. Galatians 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of a woman born under the law to save us. But God has got a time for everything. We become impatient. Often we pray for things and they don't come to pass quick enough for us. We lose heart, we get discouraged, we stop praying. Now, of course, don't do that. I just want you to understand, though, that all the prayers you have prayed, for whatever it is you're praying for, it's not like they just disappear. They ascend to God's throne. He collects these prayers and he keeps them in a place where they remain active until the time comes for him to act upon those things. Case in point, Zacharias, right? Zacharias, Luke chapter 1. You remember the story, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were a very godly couple. He was a priest, very godly, loved the Lord. And they had prayed for a son, no doubt, for years. But now they're in like their 80s, they're elderly. And Elizabeth's barren. She's been barren all these years. So one day, it was Zachariah's turn to be in the temple ministering to the Lord, uh, no doubt burning incense on the golden altar of incense, when an angel appears to him and says, Zacharias, your prayer has been heard. And by this time next year, Elizabeth will bear a son. Now, if you're Zacharias, you're thinking, What? Are you kidding me? I'm like 80. I stopped praying for a son 30 years ago. But see, even though he had lost heart, even though he thought the time had passed, God waited purposely for a time when they were both past childbearing years to work a miracle. To work to, so that everything in the process even John the Baptist's birth, because that's, of course, the son that was born to them. Of course, then John's cousin Jesus was born six months later. Everything about Jesus' coming, from the forerunner who would announce his coming to the Messiah himself, it was all a miracle of God. So that nobody could say, well, it's just, you know, one of those things. No, it was a total miracle from start to finish, right? But... Zacharias, I'm sure, was taken back uh, because he thought, what? I'm gonna have, Elizabeth can't have kids anymore. She's like 80. And uh, God basically said to him, with God, nothing shall be impossible. Therefore, I'm convinced that many of the blessings in our lives are answers to prayers we prayed for maybe years earlier. Years earlier. Uh, but maybe you have forgotten. Maybe we lost heart. And stop praying. I'll tell you a story uh, that, uh, true story, of course, it involves me, so I know it's true. Um, years ago, like uh, beginning of 2000, 
God laid it on my heart to begin to pray that he would expand our ministry beyond the walls of our church. Now, if you, and I prayed this every prayer meeting we ever did as a church for two or three years, every time. Uh, among other things, I would pray, God, pray that you would expand the influence of this church beyond the walls of this building. Now, if you were to ask me, what exactly were you asking God to do? I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. A, B, C. I, all as I knew was God laid it on my heart to pray that he would expand the influence of our church beyond the walls of the building we were in, right? And I must have prayed this for two or three years, and then I don't know what we do, why it happens, but if we just get discouraged and, and it's not happening, and so you just kind of move away from it, maybe other things come up, and now you're praying for different things, right? And, and so I, I stopped praying this prayer. I don't know why, I just stopped praying it. During the course of the years, of, it was like two or three years later, um, during that time, God opened up a door for us to be on the radio. And one day, there was a gal in the church who was at these prayer meetings, and she heard me pray this for years. And she came up to me after service and said, isn't it wonderful how God has answered your prayer? I said, what prayer? She goes, well, how is it he's expanded the influence of our church beyond the walls of this building. You know, I'm not the sharpest spiritual pencil in the box, but I should have figured this out. Seriously. I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I almost fell over. I'm like, Lord, you answered that prayer. You did answer that prayer. I forgot about it. Like Zacharias praying for a son. You know? And all of a sudden, here comes God. He does something. And, and it's like, he, on any given night, our... Bible study is on the air. I don't know how many people are, are listening. 1,000, 10,000, 30. I don't know how many people are listening. But we could never fit them in this room. And God says, that's okay. You don't have to worry about that. I'm going to expand the influence of your church beyond the walls of this building. And he did that. I make it a point to say all that because, look, I have met people over the years who have prayed faithfully for a spouse to get saved or a wayward child to come home or something, you know, that they've been praying for for a long time and it hasn't happened in years and maybe they've lost heart and they've kind of stopped praying that. In their heart, they're thinking, never going to happen. I'm just, it's just not going to ever happen. My husband's never going to get saved. My child is never going to leave the homosexual lifestyle, or this or that. Now, Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 1, men, women ought always to pray and not lose heart because God has a time for everything. And we have to just trust that. You're praying for the salvation of somebody who has lost a spouse or a child. You know you're praying in the will of God. God desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So hang in there. I know sometimes it's discouraging. And sometimes you're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you're fasting and this person's getting worse. That might be a good thing. Saul of Tarsus got worse before he actually got saved because they're fighting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus finally appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, what did he say to him? 
It's not easy for you to kick, kick against the goads, is it? You're fighting the Spirit of God. You're fighting it, Saul. And at that moment, Saul was broken. And the premier antagonist against the Christian faith became the greatest champion of the cross the church has ever seen. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Verse 8. Now when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Listen. Each having a harp. The each in the Greek is in the masculine and can only refer, listen, to the 24 elders, which is a phrase, 24 elders, which is also in the masculine in the Greek. This can't be referring to or even including the four living creatures because they are in the neuter in the Greek. And therefore they can't be in view here. This is important, guys, because it means that only the 24 elders who represent the church in heaven, we talked about that in chapter 4, only the 24 elders in heaven are singing the song of the redeemed in verse 9. Now, I'm going somewhere with it, so please hang in there, okay? Revelation 5, verse 9, And they the 24 elders, sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now I bring all of this up because in most of the newer translations, they have a footnote in the margin that says something to the effect, the best manuscripts say them. Has redeemed them to God. Or the oldest manuscripts say them, okay? Or, or, or you know, they, 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 will, the, they will have a little footnote, the best manuscripts say them, or the oldest manuscripts say them making the 24 elders a group other than the redeemed, the church. You say, well, who do people think they are? The leading, leading the list is the belief of the post-tribbers that this is a special group of angels. You know, have redeemed them, angels speaking. Can't be angels. In chapter 4, we showed you that the 24 elders can't be angels for a lot of reasons. They have to be the redeemed. We, we weeded out everybody that it could be, and all that was left was the church. The 24 elders represent the church, the redeemed. Let me just say this to you, though. If you hold to a mid-tribulation view of the rapture, in other words, the rapture is going to happen some point, a midpoint of the tribulation period, or you hold to a post tribulation view of the rapture that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation period a lot of very well-known older scholars believe in a post-trib rapture or even the newest version of this theology pre-wrath okay 
If you hold to any of those three, that the rapture is going to happen mid-trib, post-trib, or pre-wrath, you cannot, listen, you cannot have the church in heaven in chapter 5 when the tribulation period doesn't begin on the earth until chapter 6. Because all three of those groups believe the church is going to go into the tribulation period. But if the church is in heaven before the tribulation period has begun, well, these folks have pushed for the translation, have redeemed them, as if some group of angels is talking about the redeemed and not the redeemed themselves praising God, who are in heaven before the tribulation period on earth officially begins. That, folks, is flat-out dishonest and untrue. It's flat-out to believe that and to, and to teach it. And the reason that the disclaimer, the best manuscripts say them, or the oldest manuscripts say them, or the most trusted manuscripts say them, has been put in the margin of most of the newest translations of the New Testament is because, listen, many scholars are more concerned about being accepted by their intellectual peers than in taking a stand for truth, a stand that may get them, listen, ostracized from certain scholarly circles that they happen to move in. Let me just say this to you, and I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a scholar of anything. But I read scholars. I'm smart enough to read. And so I read people who do know what they're talking about. Of the 5,500 plus Greek manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, partial and complete, only 95 contain the book of Revelation. I don't know if you knew that. I think these are the 5,500 plus uh, complete manuscripts of the New Testament. Okay, I think fragments, there's it's thousands more, 25,000 parts of New Testament books. But of the 5,500 plus complete manuscripts we have of the New Testament, only 95 of them contain the book of Revelation. And of the 95, only 24 of these manuscripts contain Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And of the 24 that contain those verses, 23 say us, not them. Us have redeemed us, right? When we look at the other ancient manuscripts that came way before the modern translations of the New Testament, uh, ancient manuscripts that uh, translate Revelation 5, verse 9, like the Latin Vulgate, the Syriac, the Coptic, all of them without exception read us, have redeemed us, not them, us. Speaking of the fact that what's in view here are the redeemed speaking, the church in heaven, around the throne of God, praising the Lamb for redeeming all. We'll be there. We're going to be there. We're going to be living out Revelation 5, 9 eventually. You'll, you'll understand when you're standing before the throne and you're, and you're praising the Lamb for redeeming us, us. Years ago, I was listening to one of our Calvary pastors. And he pastors a pretty good-sized church. Good guy, good guy. And he was relating this story. He said, uh, I know of a pastor who is a Greek scholar. And he taught on this very thing when he was teaching through Revelation. 
Well, a few days later, he gets a phone call from a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary. And this professor says to this pastor, um, I was listening to your tapes on Revelation, where you said in chapter 5, verse 9, the correct translation has, is us, redeemed us to God, and not them. Is that true? And this pastor said, yes, it's true. He says, well, can I say something to you? Sure. A little knowledge can be a troubling thing, okay? What do you mean? Or how so? He said, well, did you realize of all the manuscripts we have of the New Testament, we only have 95 that contain the book of Revelation? He said, yes, I know that. And out of those 95, only 23 translated us and not them. That's like one quarter, only 25%. So why do you say us is the proper translation when only one quarter of the manuscripts that contain the book of Revelation say us and not them? The pastor said, well, that's interesting. Can I say something to you, Professor? Sure. A uh, little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. How so? Well, do you realize that of the 95 manuscripts that have the book of Revelation, only 24 of them contain, uh, in chapter 5, contain verses 9 and 10. And of those 24, 23 have it translated us. There's only one Greek manuscript in the world that contains the word them, has redeemed them, and that is something called Codex Alexandrinus from Alexandria, Egypt. The Codex from Alexandria, Egypt. And I think as evangelicals, we're not too, you know, kosher with anything coming out of Egypt. Okay? <laughs> Besides, to further clear things up, guys, I'm just giving you, because you'll, you'll hear this stuff. You look at your Bibles, and, oh, this is not in the best manuscripts. This is not in the oldest manuscripts. And you're wowed by that. You're like, oh, wow, you know. My Bible can't be trusted. Understand that a lot of times what's going on here is theological bias, bias because certain professors and scholars have a preconceived idea of their theology, which, you know, and so they want to kind of uh, massage, put it mildly, uh, certain passages to make them agree with what they believe. I don't know if you realize this. But this, this, in my mind, further clears things up, right? As we studied chapter 1, we saw how that Jesus Christ dictated the book of Revelation to the Apostle John, right? Who then wrote it down. Now, before John copied it, now he had, the full revelation was given to him now. Before he copied it to give to the seven churches of Asia Minor, he adds a prologue. What is that? An introduction that takes up the first eight verses of chapter 1. The book of Revelation technically does not start until chapter 1, verse 9. Technically. The first eight verses are John's introduction. In that introduction, contained in the first eight verses of chapter 1, he quotes... In verses 5 and 6, Revelation 1, he quotes chapter 5, 
verses 9 and 10. Again, already given to John. That was part of the complete revelation. And now he's quoting from Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, in his introduction. Let me read to you what he says in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed who? us from our sins in his own blood and has made who us kings and priests to our to his god and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen when you compare this with revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 guys it is the same thought incorporating the same language you see, we don't have to look any farther because John himself clarifies what the correct translation of Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 is. And he tells us it's us, not them, not some group of angels talking about the redeemed. The redeemed are talking. He has washed us from our sins in his own blood, made us a kingdom of priests and kings. I mean, who is the only group of people who can say, verse 9, For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What is the only group in the world that could sing that song? The church. The church. And again, the church is singing the song of the redeemed in heaven in Revelation 5 before the tribulation ever starts on the earth, which starts in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. So hang on to that. We'll have to bring it to a close here tonight. I want to get a little farther, but I always want to get farther. And I don't. Uh, a lot more good stuff coming. Next week we'll finish 5 and get into chapter 6. And wow, it gets really incredible as we begin to see what's going on in chapter 6. So uh, just something to think about and meditate on, and we'll continue, God willing, next week. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were a willing lamb who offered yourself for the sins of this fallen world, that you might redeem the world, not because you needed another planet, but you found the treasure of on this planet that you wanted to make your bride. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for our sins. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.